And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. Sometimes, when people go to the police with leads, they can hit a brick wall. Either the cops aren't interested, and if they are, they might meet and talk to the witness. But many people are left with a feeling that the information they thought might be important isn't. We saw this in episode 4 with Stephen Chalmers, who witnessed the 1978-1980 model yellow Ford Cortina with a black vinyl roof come flying out of the Cannonook Station car park two hours after Sarah got off the train. The police didn't follow up after he reported it. But if all the cops agree that Sarah was removed in a vehicle, and Stephen saw one being driven in an erratic way two hours later, we have to wonder if that could have been the car. Today's episode reminds us that there can be people out there who may have important information, but even when they try and do the right thing, they might not be listened to. One of the many reasons why podcasts are so popular is that people feel a connection not only to the story, but also to the host. They feel like if they reach out and the host will listen to them, then their story can be added to the broader narrative. Where the police can be a closed door, podcasts and crime writers can be the door that is wide open. This episode is about one man who reached out to Vicky Petratus with his story. About two years ago, a man called Steve contacted me through Facebook saying that he was the one who had found Sarah McDermott's handbag and purse. His message caught my interest because, as far as I knew, Sarah's handbag and purse had never been found. Before Steve tells his story, I need to set the scene. You will need to know what a retarding basin is for reasons that will soon become obvious. I'd never heard of them before and had to Google them. Retarding basins are areas of vacant, low-lying land designed to catch heavy rainfall runoff. They take the pressure off suburban draining systems and prevent flooding. There are 200 retarding basins dotted across Melbourne in built-up areas. Some sites double as recreation areas when they're not full of water. The retarding basin in Seaford is not like that. It's in a factory area adjacent to the train tracks that lead to the Cannonock Railway Station. Back in the 1990s, the retarding basin, the factories, paths and bridges proved an irresistible lure to the kids in the area. Here is Steve's story. 
I grew up in Cannanook. I was born in early 80s. And during my younger years, I used to follow my older brothers around and we'd spend a lot of our time down at the Cannanook Creek building huts, fortresses, cubby houses, bike jumps. Then as we got a bit older, older brothers bought motorbikes or a scooter and even the locals in the area would remember us. We used to ride our motorbikes up and down the train tracks or around the retarding basin just off Barty Avenue there. And I remember this one particular day, we used to use that walkway from Cannanook, cross over the train tracks of Barty Avenue, cut through the retarding basin, and there's a vacant block there between the factories that you can take you out onto the street and take you up onto Old Wells Road. And then you can cut over the footbridge onto Hartnett Drive. So, you know, it's just the way the locals in the area know, you know, how to cut through the suburb. So this one particular day, a friend and I, we've come up over the train tracks and the retarding basin was always filled with water. Like for the 10 years that we'd been going there, it had always been filled with water. But this one particular year, it was all dried up. And we both looked at it, we were amazed. We were like, wow, we've never seen this area not filled with water. And so we didn't have to walk around the outer edge of the bike track because the middle was always filled with water. So we decided, excellent, we'll cut through the middle. So as we're cutting through the middle, my foot's tripped on something. And when I've looked back, I've realised that my foot's pulled up the handle of a handbag and it's actually dragged it up out of the mud. And so my friend and I, we've stopped and we've looked at each other quite shocked, like, what's that doing there? And so we've picked it up. It was caked in mud, so we weren't able to really define the material or anything on it, but it was a handbag. So we've pulled it up, opened up the handbag, and saw that there was a purse in there. And so we've grabbed the purse, dropped the handbag, and then we've opened up the purse contents, as teenage kids do, looked straight into the money section, and there was no money. And so our next point of call is to have a look through the card, see whose purse it is that we're holding on to, in case it's someone in the local area, maybe someone, one of our friends who we used to ride motorbikes down there, threw it in there, you know? so pulled out a couple of the cards and one of the cards I pulled out was a Civic Video rental card. Then I said to my friend, well, let's go hire some videos, never have to take them back type thing. And then I had a giggle and then looked at the name and it said, Sarah McDermott. Now, when I first saw that name, it didn't register in my mind because my mum and all the people in the local neighbourhood had always referred to this girl as Sarah McDermott. M-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T. And it wasn't until I think about six months later when I was going through the local newspaper that there was a reference to a memorial for Sarah McDermott and my jaw hit the ground as soon as I saw her name written in the newspapers as the same name that I'd seen on this Civic video card. By the time I'd gone back around to the retarding basin to see if I could 
find this card or find any trace of this purse or handbag, but seem to have all been gone. Steve estimated the date of his finding the bag to be in the early 2000s, six months before the anniversary. So it might be the 10th anniversary he's remembering, which makes sense because it would have been covered widely in the media. This would put the best estimate of his find to be the summer of 2000. After I saw her name mentioned in the paper, I mentioned it to my mum and she said, don't contact the police about it. And I was taken a bit aback by that. You know, usually it's, yeah, definitely call the police. And it was something my mum said, it's something that will follow you forever. And I, I said, well, I want to do the right thing, mum. I spoke to Steve's mum to see if she remembered Steve telling her he'd found Sarah McDermott's bag all those years ago. She did. Yes, I do. And I think he was with a friend of his, Nick, but it could have been somebody else. I'm not sure. But I I didn't take it seriously. Like, there was a lot going on at the time. He was going through bullying at school. And... I was going through a really terrible divorce and then I became disabled and it was just all at once. Do you know what I mean? Just all these things all at once. These things are problematic. Steve told his mum he found Sarah's bag months earlier. The bag is gone. In a life suddenly riddled with hardship, it was one thing too many for her. Nonetheless, she definitely remembers Steve telling her about finding the bag when he was a teenager. I was sort of thinking my head around about 16, so if, if you've worked it out to 17, it'd pro- probably be right, you know. Yeah, I have three sons that, you know, I had to keep track of. So Steve didn't report his find to the police, but it niggled away at him. I didn't really know what to do. For a couple of years, I stewed on it. Then I ended up working at National Gallery of Victoria and one of my supervisors there, he was an ex-police detective. And I pulled him aside one day and I said, what do you think I should do? And he gave me a couple phone numbers to call. Uh, One of them turned out to be Jason Wallace at the Homicide Squad. And Jason and Charlie Bazina both drove down and picked me up in the car and then I drove them down to that particular area and pointed out and I told them that story I've just told you as well. Uh, And also took them... So where this retarding basin is next to the train line, if you follow the train line down, it took you straight along the back of Menzies Metals and under the bridge at Clough Street, and then straight into the train station. Looking at the satellite map, it's a kilometre from the retarding basin to the Cannonook Railway Station. There's a path adjacent to the retarding basin which winds all the way round to the station. By car, access is an easy drive from the station car park. A right turn onto Wells Road, up the overpass, 
then a quick left onto the continuation of Wells Road. A little way up is Miles Grove, which is largely industrial. Between two of the factories in Miles Grove is a big car park which backs onto the retarding basin. It's a short trip from the station by car. So the police listened to Steve. They went with him to the retarding basin where he'd found the bag years earlier. The bag was gone. End of story. They made a note of his report for their files. What surprised me is that if Steve's story is correct, might it not have been a good idea to search the area for the other items that Sarah was carrying the night she was taken? When I asked about this, the police contacted Steve and told him that because the area had been checked out already, they wouldn't be looking into it again. Which I felt was a bit odd because the handbag that Steve described to me was very much like the one Sheila McDermott described to me. No, it was a black, it was a black bag and it wasn't a shoulder because sometimes she had shoulder ones, but that was a handbag that she had. So one of two handles. That's what she had, was the two handles. And that would have been, that would have been in her, because that's why we find it so strange, because she would have had her keys in her hand ready to unlock the car, and yet, and she had such a lot of stuff with her. And she'd been carrying her tennis racket, and yet nothing. You see, she changed into her tennis outfit and came home in that. So she had her suit and her shoes and everything all in the in the backpack, and her handbag would have been there as well. And remember Diane's statement about what Sarah was carrying on the train. Sarah had a grey-coloured carry bag, and I think a black handbag, and a tennis racket in a black cover. Steve recalled the Civic video card he found in the purse. I'd say it was around the age of 17 and flicking through the cards, I don't know about bank cards or anything like that, but as soon as I saw that Civic video card, I knew exactly what that was because that was a card I'd be using as a kid growing up. I asked Peter and Sheila about this. Because the one thing you did say about a video thing, now Sarah would have had a video card. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. I know she had, yeah, because yeah. we so did... The video was the one we used to go to, which was just up on that, on that main, and it was a beach... Beach, beach road, road, yeah. And, of course, it wasn't the only thing Sarah was carrying the night she disappeared. Might it be worth exploring the area for her backpack and tennis racket and maybe even her? It was a coincidence that when Steve first contacted me with this information, I had just put together a talk on the Frankston murders. I had also put out a 25th anniversary edition of the book to try and keep the case in the public eye, given that the 30-year minimum part of Paul Denyer's sentence was drawing closer. Having just re-edited the book, the case was very fresh in my mind. My first thought about what Steve told me was, Denya was a purse barrier. In the previous episode, we heard how he had gone back to Debbie Frame's car after he dumped it outside the Christian Centre 
and had taken her purse. He had buried it along the bike path where he killed his final victim, Natalie Russell. I wanted to see what her name was and everything out of her wallet, so... I took it up to the golf course and buried it. So you'd be able to show us where that is? Exactly. If that would you be able to find the spot? Uh, I'll find it. So, could this be part of a pattern? It seemed like Steve's information could be really important. He told me that he tried to share his story with anyone he thought might listen. He'd spoken to Laurie Ratz about it after connecting through a mutual friend. I was intrigued with his story and contacted Laurie about it. Like me, he had found Steve credible. But Laurie was retired, and I wasn't in a position to do anything with the information, but I didn't forget it. When the case file host asked me to make this podcast on Sarah, after the McDermott's and Laurie Rads, Steve was the first person I contacted. Now, back to the purse and the bike track. In another example of just how close all of these places were, The McDermott's house on Sky Road backed onto John Paul College where Natalie Russell went to school. The house was about 300 metres from the entrance to the bike track, even though by then the McDermott's had moved into state. Because Natalie's, she had walked past our house to go through, to go home. The, The house that we used to live in, because that was just down from that road and our back garden backed on to the school. And poor Natalie, you see, it was not far on the other side, obviously, that she was found. So when Daniel went down the bike track to bury Debbie Frame's purse, he took the cash, but he buried the cards. After he dug up the purse for the police in the reenactment video, he kicked at the dirt again and found the cards. As he handed them to Rod Wilson, the detective could see the name on them. Frame. Having that scene forever fixed in my mind, when Steve described Sarah's handbag as being buried, the first thing I thought was, that's what Denya did. I'll never forget the video of Denya squeezing through that hole in the cyclone wire fence and digging up his trophy. He knew exactly where it was, where the cards were, kept there so he could find them any time he wanted. One of the many reasons why Steve's story is so potentially important is that if it was Sarah's purse he found, and he's certain it was, it suggests a similar pattern to what we know Denya did. Who else is in the area killing women and burying their purses? Some police felt Sarah's murder was a robbery gone wrong. It would account for there being no cash in the wallet, but why leave the cards? Jodie Jones, a known drug addict, would surely know how to use a stolen bank card. Or if she didn't, she would have known people who did. And we know from what Denya did with Debbie Frame's purse that he pocketed the money and left the cards. When Steve found the purse, it had no money, but the cards were left behind. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I don't know as well if it's because of what happened in Cannanook while growing up, but I've got one of those memories that I can recall stories from when I was five or six. Yeah, I've got a, I've got one of those really good memories where I can recall details and information. And that's not the only thing that happened. Both Steve and his mum had encounters with Paul Denya before he was arrested. My mum's never owned a licence. She's always taken public transport into Frankston or walked. One day when my mum was walking through Cannanook, she walked through the factories and she was using the shortcut under the Cannanook train station bridge. And as she was approaching the underneath, a couple of the blokes, one of the blokes who was sitting out on the roadway at the factories having lunch, yelled out to her and said, hey, love, don't walk through there. There's some weirdo in there. And my mum turned around, looked up and... Paul Daniel was standing there in the bushes and turned around and waddled off. And my mum said she got the creeps straight away and she, she, she just looked at the blokes and the blokes looked at her like all shocked and she just walked all the way around and said she ended up walking up over the bridge the long way. When I interviewed Steve's mum, she told me the story too. She walked down Bardia Avenue every week there was a shortcut where pedestrians could go through the bush area and under the bridge. The long way meant walking to the end of Bardia Avenue, which came out opposite the Cannonock Railway Station car park, then turning left to walk up the overpass. I was a walker and all my life, I, like I'd walk everywhere with my three sons when they were little. And they'd always say, take the shortcut. And I wouldn't even take the shortcut with them. And when I used to go to my physio on a weekly basis, I always just got this feeling, no, don't even walk on the railway side, walk on the footpath side. You know, you get a sense. And then on a Tuesday afternoon, I'd go to hydrotherapy off Clough Street. And one Tuesday, and I thought, oh, I just don't want to walk over the bridge. Maybe I should take the bloody shortcut. And I started to, and then all of a sudden, all these men jumped up from Vidotto Auto. They were sitting out the front having their lunch. And they yelled out to me, don't take the shortcut, take the bridge. And... I sort of turned around, looked over my shoulder, and I saw this big lug, you know, this big kid in trackies. And I sort of waved to the men, right, I'll take the bridge. And then I turned around again, and he was gone. And every time I walk past, or drive past there in a taxi, I just think those men at Vidotto saved my life. And that was two days before Debbie Frame was taken, and that was on a Thursday, I'm pretty sure. An interesting fact to note here is that 
Denya had a short-lived job further up Bardia Avenue in the direction of the retarding basin. He only lasted a couple of months and his co-workers would later report disturbing behaviours such as making knives at work. So Paul Denya was known to locals. His face was familiar, loitering in the area. So much so that when he was arrested, people saw his picture in the paper and made the connection to the times they'd seen him wandering the neighbourhood, giving people the heebie-jeebies. She saw his face on the paper and I even pointed out to my mum that we had seen him driving over the Seaford Road railway crossing in his little yellow car at one stage as well. She was walking me to Safeway there and as he was driving past, he, no word of a lie, Vicky, he beeped his horn, looked at me and my mum and gave us a little wave. The next reason why Steve's story is potentially significant is that if the handbag and purse were gone when he went back six months later to check, it begs the question, could someone have picked them up sometime between January and July 2000? Could there be someone out there who picked up that bag and purse and might hear this and think, gee, that reminds me of that old bag I found? If someone did pick them up, could they be at the back of their garage or shed? Could there be someone out there who holds this vital piece of evidence in the disappearance of Sarah McDermott? Steve is left forever to wonder if coming forward sooner than he did might have made a difference. I remember sitting in the lounge at my mum's house reading it and, yes, still remember that feeling of my heart sinking inside my chest and feeling guilty as all hell. And even every time going to Cannonook train station to catch the train to TAFE, walking past that memorial and looking down, saying a little sorry that I didn't do more when I should have. But that's the thing that eats me alive. That's the thing I feel absolute shit about that I should have called the police straight away because there possibly still would have been evidence down in the retarding basin that would have corroborated everything I've told you. But it's never too late. Steve has come forward and any information is better late than never. For most of the time, the retarding basin does its job It's marshy and swampy, or full of water. When I started looking at this as a theory, I asked SES boss Brian McManus for his thoughts. If she had been buried there, then she probably wouldn't have been buried too far down. And I think if people walk through there quite often, I think uh, the smell, the smell of a deceased body is pretty strong. And I think somebody would have said, what's going on down there? I bow to the greater knowledge of experts, but of course we can wonder if her bag was there and if it was pushed or trodden down into the mud, might that make a difference? You know like when you step in deep mud in gumboots and the gumboot gets suctioned right off your foot? Of course, there are a lot of ifs in this scenario, but bear with me. Some quite chilling similarities occurred to me as I was writing this podcast and at the same time editing a short story about Paul Denyer's confessions 
for another book I was writing called Police Stories. In an earlier episode, we mentioned how Denya used water. Here's an excerpt from my book of how he described killing Elizabeth Stevens. Denya told Wilson that Elizabeth had been carrying a bag when he had taken her to the park, and he said that he left the bag about 10 metres from her body. Denya said, There was a puddle of, like, flooded area there, and I pushed her into there so she could wash her, you know, blood off her and all that, and then I dragged her across the water. So we know that Denya has used a flooded area before to try and wash away evidence and hide a body. The big question, was the retarding basin searched at the time? Brian McManus said the SES didn't search it. I imagine at a time, a visual scan of the reasonably flat, marshy land would suggest it was undisturbed. The police keep a search map. I spoke to Laurie Ratz about the area. Look, I, I don't know. It's interesting, but I'm, I'm not sure in that area whether it was full of water in 1990 or, or what. It would, if it was full of water, it probably wouldn't have been searched. Brian McManus said we never searched it. That doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't searched, though. Yeah. It means the SES didn't search it. Fair enough. Any information I got, I shared with Peter and Sheila McDermott. This podcast has always been about finding Sarah. That boy in that reserve over a retarding basin, how long ago after Sarah's disappearance did he stumble over there? He thinks it was 10 years after. That that retarding basin was full of water in all the time that he'd seen it, and one day it wasn't, and that's the day that he tripped over the hand. See, I'm just wondering how often... It dried out. If it was always like that, full of water, it could be that that bag's just a foot under the silt on the mud if it's if, if it's been wet a few times. But did they dig that up? No. No, no, they wouldn't, because it wasn't told. That was about ten years after, but he didn't go to the police. Thirty years after the disappearance of their daughter. All the McDermott's want is to get her back, to know for sure. Even if there's the slightest possibility that Sarah is in the retarding basin, how hard would it be to search the area? In 2015, I wrote a book on the Victoria Police Dog Squad and spent six months interviewing police dog handlers. I'm not sure about now, but one thing Vic Pohl didn't have at the time was a cadaver dog, one that detects human remains. New South Wales and Queensland had them, but Victoria didn't. The capabilities of highly trained police dogs are extraordinary. But after 30 years, I wondered if sniffer dogs could still be utilised. I set out to explore just how human remains detector dogs are trained and if they could help now in the search for Sarah. I spoke to Dave Wright, a retired senior sergeant from the New South Wales Police Dog Unit. Dave's credentials are impeccable. I commenced with the New South Wales Police Dog Unit in 1996. I was a patrol dog handler for most of my career there. 
from about 2011 to 2014. I was the senior sergeant training coordinator at the dog unit. And I also ran a cadaver detection Springer Spaniel during the last few years of my career. My background spread across patrol dogs, all different breeds, all different sort of capabilities and finished with human remains detection. We know how effective trained dogs can be, but how are these dogs trained? What are they looking for? There's a a range of odours that we train the dogs on if they're detecting human remains. It could be skeletal remains, it could be flesh or decomposing flesh, fluids, decomp fluids. And then there's a range of odour thresholds that might be present depending on you know, is it above ground? Is it buried? Is it seeping up through the surface? So with detection dogs, often you won't see a range of odours so significant as what you will with human remains detection because it can be quite minute, very difficult to detect where the dog needs to be almost placed right on top of where the odour is coming from. Or they could be picking that odour up from literally hundreds of metres away. If you don't know anything about the way dogs are trained to detect particular odours, you would wonder how, if they go through bushland, how are they not fooled by, say, the odour of a dead possum? Apart from having an incredible ability to detect even the most minute dilutions of odour, right down to the one part per trillion, they also, the way their noses are designed, they they have the ability to really discriminate between odours as well. So unlike us, we detect odours coming through and place them in a very broad category, whereas dogs can break them down into every individual compound and and compartmentalise those odours in such a way that they can recognise the most unique signature in that odour. So even though possums and human remains might have some similarities to a human to to pick up on. The dog very, very easily is able to discriminate those two odours. And we obviously use that ability in training to teach them that that odour there will bring reward. And if you detect that odour there, nothing will happen. There'll be no positive consequence coming out of detecting those remains compared to. And so we, we factor them into training as what we call a distractor a deliberate distractor, and we put those other odours that might have similarity or might be often found in the same location and cause distraction, we deliberately include that into our training regime to imprint the dog specifically on the target odour and make sure that it leaves any other odours that aren't related to what we're looking for alone. Even though they know they're there, they are trained to disregard them through distraction training. But of course, the big question is, if we did get information about where Sarah might be, could a human remains detected dog find her after 30 years? One thing that cadaver detection dogs do give is often some false hope to families because their capabilities are often overestimated. And we have to be realistic about what a cadaver dog can do after 30 years. Yes, there is very likely to be skeletal remains are detectable by dogs to begin with. So there's no question that they can detect those remains. What it comes down to are the circumstances of where those remains are. Are they buried so far underground that the seepage of the odour up through the soil 
is so insignificant and to the point where there is just no odour coming through the surface of the of the ground. If there's no odour there, obviously the dogs just can't detect it. The, the odour has to be there. So if the remains were on top of the ground, that would be quite an easy search for a dog, believe it or not. If it was if it was put into the into the correct search area now. Dogs can obviously search large areas far more efficiently and quickly than people, and that's that's what great benefit they they bring to human remains recovery. So if Sarah's remains were in the retarding basin, a dog would only have a chance if they weren't buried too deep. Probes are used in these types of searches. It makes sense. In the case of buried remains, the dog would literally have to scour just above the surface. And then the, the soil conditions would need to be such that that the odour of the remains are seeping up. Even even some 30 years down the track, that, that is a possibility, but I'm, I'm not going to say it would be an easy pickup for a dog. The dog would literally have to be intensively searching a specific area. And there could also be added tools such as probing the the ground to release odours from buried within. So that would involve sticking a, a long rod down into the earth to release the odours that might be trapped underneath. But again, you can imagine that requires very specific pinpoint information. I described the retarding basin to Dave. It's an area roughly the size of a football field. Now, if we're only talking one particular case of an area defined by the size of a football field, then yes, I think it would it would definitely be worth putting a well-trained human remains dog through an area like that with the potential to find some either very shallow remains buried very low beneath the surface, not, not very deep, as, as you would get with silting over and that type of thing, then potentially, yes, there could be some skeletal remains there that would give off enough odour for a dog to indicate Dave told me about a human remains detector dog in Victoria. It was privately owned and Dave had been involved in its certification process. I talked about it with the McDermott's. Maybe we could hire the dog and the handler ourselves and all go down to the retarding basin. Peter McDermott was keen. He also wanted to meet Steve and talk to him about finding Sarah's handbag. Kate from the Frankston Community Notice Board Facebook page sent up a drone and got some aerial shots of the retarding basin looking marshy but not full of water. We were ready to begin setting things in motion when the second wave of the coronavirus hit Melbourne and locked us all down. During lockdown, unseasonably heavy rain in Melbourne meant that as soon as lockdown was over, The retarding basin was so full, it looked like a swimming pool. With conditions turning so unfavourable, Jane, a friend of mine, said to me, in the meantime, you could go over the area with a metal detector. I hadn't thought of that, but it made perfect sense. Buckles, zippers, handbag clasps, tennis rackets would all be detectable. In discussions with Jane who is both a retired cop and a keen gold prospector, she suggested waiting for the water to subside and then running a metal detector over the area where Steve found the bag. Now, 
We just have to wait till the water goes down. The police know about the area, but as Charlie Bazina told me from the position of a retired cop, much of the decision-making around searches is to do with cost. But everyone connected with this case knows that cost isn't just about money. It's a possibility. It's a matter of, yeah, if you don't, it's the old fail to search, fail to find. It's a matter of it was there. You've got a link, so you've got something to go back with. If that her bag was found there and it was Sarah's, well, it stands to reason that you would then excavate around that area to say that. Yes, it does stand to reason. So here's our plan. When the retarding basin empties of water, hopefully over the summer, we plan to explore it first with a metal detector. My friend Jane explains the kinds of things a metal detector might pick up. I think the best chance of finding anything is finding that tennis racket. It'll be the easiest thing because I would use my detector that's... One of mine looks at all metal and the other one I can turn off all metal and it just goes for non-ferrous, as in non-rusting. So I would use that one first and see if I could find that tennis racket. And that would be so easy to find because it'll be a big chunk of aluminium and it'll be sitting there. Then I'd scale it down and then just do a general search for anything metal in the whole area. So how deep will the detectors work? The bigger the target, the deeper they'll detect. So something like the tennis racket, I think you would find that probably three foot deep, even even deeper, maybe even four foot deep. A lot of it depends on, you know, if it's only just silty, sandy topping to it, yeah, I would say you could be digging three feet to find a, a target that big. Jane uses her metal detectors mainly for gold prospecting. So the size of the targets that register are much smaller compared to finding Sarah's tennis racket. The targets I typically find are the size of a shotgun pellet and I can hear them very clearly. So when you get something that's as big as an aluminium tennis racket, you'd get an overload noise, which is like it just goes off its chops. So it detects that very deep. It's not just the tennis racket that could be detectable with a metal detector. I'd still be confident for a large tight buckle that I would find it a foot under dirt for sure. And and it could be deeper. And if there's a number of targets in one area, like a buckle, a zip and another buckle, you'll definitely go that little bit deeper. As of the time of recording, the retarding basin is full. I'm not sure if it's ever completely dry, but how dry should it be before we search? I wouldn't detect there while there's still water. My machines both will work underwater, but it's so hard to physically dig and identify what you've dug up when you're going through slush and mud and and water. And detecting it, you can do. It's difficult, of course, because you'd be wading through water. But when you go to dig something up, you're doing it blind and you're putting your hand into water or mud and trying to sift through stuff. So, no, I wouldn't be confident at all. Dry detecting would be the way to go. And so we wait. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott. I got told, because I knew her so well, somebody told me in PNG that she'd died, and I was a bit upset about that. 
So clearly what we're looking for is people that have specific information and I'd be overjoyed if someone could come forward after 30 years and say, look, my dad told me that he was standing on the bridge and saw something, or that was me that was on the platform of the train when Sarah got off and I saw something and I went to live in New Zealand afterwards and I didn't see all the media. 